I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into our, our time of, of studying through the Word. And um, I, I just want, before we go into prayer, that maybe you would pray along with me. Um, not just kind of close your eyes and listen to me pray, but, but actively pray with me right now that God would kind of eliminate some of these things that are going on in your head. Um, all the worries of the season, all the worries of the semester, all the worries of the year, um, and that you could just ask God right now to maybe clear your head and mind to just listen to His Word, listen to what are some of the things that you're going to hear today, and that you would be able to focus on the great good news of the Gospel and what God wants to teach you this morning. So I'm going to pray, and I just ask that you would do that with me. God, it's, it's really difficult for us, and, and, and I am way in here included with all the things going on in a, in a busy season of Christmas or the holidays or life or college or young marriages or old marriages. It's really easy to kind of cruise in, cruise out week after week or for maybe for the first time and not stop and pause and really consider that the God of the universe that created everything is going to speak directly to us this morning. And that we should listen. If that, that truth could land down deep in our souls this morning, we would have no choice but to actively engage our hearts and souls. And so I pray for myself this morning that I would do that. And for each person here. Lord, I pray for myself, God, that you would help me. That you would help me be clear and concise. And that every word I say would be from you and not my own. Keep me from saying things that wouldn't be helpful. pray for each person here, Lord, that they would have a renewed vision of the glory of God this morning and how that and that alone can shape the rest of their life. That and that alone can eliminate what are some problems or at least be the comfort as they go through the problems and sufferings and downfalls or hurts of life. So whether we're in a good season or bad right now, we pray for a vision of Christ that would blow our minds. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, just to kind of give you an idea of what we're doing, we're studying the book of Matthew right now. And when in the very first chapter, you'll see that there's a list of genealogy. Um, and so I decided to do something insane. Um, instead of doing a genealogy in one sermon and moving on to something different, I decided in my infinite wisdom, and maybe a little sarcasm there, to do a genealogy over the course of three weeks just to <laughs> maybe torture all of us um, as we read so-and-so had so-and-so and so-and-so for three straight weeks. And the reason why, and I said this last week, um, there is a reason, and I, I hope it's a good one, um, is... This is our fourth book that we've preached through. We went 
through Galatians, we went through 1 Timothy, we went through 1 John, which are all pretty much the same kind of genre, um, epistles, letters, and now we're going through Matthew, which is our fourth New Testament book. Um, And so, not wanting you to think that I just kind of don't like the Old Testament, what we're doing here is, over the three weeks, I'm just kind of giving you at a third at the time, an overview, a, a, an Old Testament narrative overview, um, and how we came up to Christ. And so I'm hoping that since we haven't really done this as a church at Remedy, you're finding this beneficial. You're finding this um, helpful as you're kind of getting a picture to understand the Old Testament and, and what those stories, if you never spend any time reading the Old Testament, you always just kind of jump over and read the New Testament because it's, it's the more familiar stories um, that you're getting a... a a desire to want to go spend some time in the Old Testament, um, and also, hopefully, seeing that Jesus is in the Old Testament. The whole book's about Jesus, Old and New Testament, and that you can see how the Old Testament is about the coming Messiah as well. So, last week we did, um, basically, Abraham to David, and how we got up to the kings, and then today, the way Matthew wrote the the genealogies um, in 6 through 11, um, this is really just the period of the kings, and so we're going to see... what David wasn't the first king, Saul was in the Old Testament, but David was kind of the, the pinnacle, the greatest king ever. And we're going to see how all these kings happened um, and what was really the downfall of it all. Um, and so that's what we're going to be doing today is looking at the kings of the Old, of the Old Testament. Now, one thing that you should always know um, from anybody that whenever you're listening to someone preach or as you're studying your Bible yourself is whenever you're looking at a text, um, every text has one meaning. There aren't several meanings for texts. There's one meaning. There's, there's many applications today. But there's always just one meaning in a text. Um, and so whenever you're go- at a study or if you have something and somebody says, what this means to me, what this means to me, what this, d- try not to get into those things. What, what matters is what does it mean? Now, there's debates over what it means, but I think it's pretty clear here in the genealogy what this means. We know that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience um, and he's warning Jews, um, those who are of the tribe of Israel or who are Israelites, to see and know and understand that this guy named Jesus that all the Old Testament um, has been writing about, this guy Jesus is the Messiah. The Old Testament is filled with writings about this coming Messiah who's going to be the king of Israel and save his people. Um, And he is writing to them saying, you need to know that this guy Jesus is that guy. And so um, in the genealogy, he's trying to point that out. So the point of the genealogy, the, the meaning of the genealogy is this, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. That's the meaning of this genealogy. So today as I'm, as I'm having points and I'm making um, observations and things like that, you need to know I'm, I'm driving towards application as I'm doing those things. Um, there's going to be lots of applications that I want to draw out for you and me throughout this week. But the meaning of this is that you would see that Jesus is the Messiah and that you would want to hope in Him, that you would see His death Burial and resurrection is my only hope for life and sustainment and everything. But I will draw out several, several applications as we go through here. Um, and some of them I'll have on the screen and some of them I'll just kind of make offhand. All right, so Matthew wrote this book um, somewhere around the late 50s um, to early 60s. So around 20-something years after Jesus had died. 
Um, and the theme is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of, of Israel. And the genre of this book is gospel narrative. It's story. So it's different than as the letters that we've been, that we've been studying. Um, letters have a certain genre where generally they're trying to draw out an argument. This is, this is gospel narrative. So it's going to be very different to, to listen to and try to preach through that these are stories and we're trying to understand what are some of the stories that they're telling us. Now, um, the point that we're uh, looking at here and that, that, that Matthew is writing to them is that God... And, you know, we're in the Christmas time, and so we're talking about this, this thing called the incarnation. This is God become man, and what this all is, um, and what this is all about. And so he's trying to help them see that Jesus that came is the God that came, became man. God become man. And so I, I want to, for us, before we kind of jump in, let us just kind of renew our understanding of that. Because I think sometimes, especially if you've been in, in uh, church for a while, that's just like accepted. Yeah, God became man. I got it. Let's move on to the next deal. And so I want to kind of bring us back before we jump through that truth and just like, yeah, I got it. And let it amaze us as it should. Let it amaze us as it should. Philippians 2 says this, talking about Jesus. It said, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, Jesus in heaven and, and even now, has always been equal with God. So he's saying, Paul's saying as he writes this, that Jesus was grasping, in a sense, this equality with God in heaven. And what he's saying is that whenever he became incarnate, whenever he became man, in a sense, um, he decided not to grasp that. He decided to let go in some sense. Now, if you drive that too far, you're going to go into heresy. But in some sense, he let go of this equality with God in a way. All right, and, and let's just keep going because I'm going to explain that and I'm not going to be heretical as we say. And he just let go of his deity completely. He didn't let go of deity. It's not like God stopped being deity or Jesus stopped being deity and just became man. Instead, he always remained deity and now humanity clothed the deity. All right, so he always remained God, but here we are. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what is the thing he's actually letting go then? All right, let's keep going. Look what it says in 7. But made himself nothing made himself nothing why is that there why is that there um because god becoming a man is absolutely amazing we need to kind of take it out of our mind about how and, and kind of take away this high view of how great it is to be a man um, how great it is to be human being human is not a great thing especially if you're god before that and then you clothe yourself with humanity we we're not great people and so he humbled himself he became nothing he took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross so not only did he become a man which is mind-blowing he came a man and then always had the intention of being crucified god wanted to die for us now, if we can just stop and imagine this, the thing that he's letting, glow, letting go of is this. Um, what he's letting go of is the glory that he was receiving. While he was in heaven, this, 
we see this in some pictures, like in Isaiah 6, it says, Isaiah 6 says, um, in the year the, the King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and the train of his robe filled the temple with his glory. And basically he says, um, whenever I saw God, I became a man of unclean lips. Isaiah got a view of what Jesus was like in heaven. The glory that he was receiving. What I want you to do here is just picture with me, if we can, and I know we can't perfectly, um, or even maybe we come close to it, what was the glory like that Jesus had in heaven before the incarnation? We get a picture of it in Isaiah. We get another picture of it of what it was kind of going to be like in Revelation 1, where in the future, John said he saw the Lord seated on the throne and he's just all kinds of stuff. And it says, when I saw him, I fell down like I was dead. So the picture of this glory that Jesus had is absolutely mind-blowing. It's amazing. Always receiving praise. Always receiving glory. Everyone is singing out glory and praises to him because he's the only one who is do that. And he had, re- he had received that and experienced that from eternity past until the incarnation. That should amaze us that he would say, I'm going to, as, as Calvin um, said, and basically what, what's going on here is that he decided to let go of this glory for a period and become a man. The, the, the glory that was due him in view of man, man's view of his glory, was, was let go for a period while he was here. If we can just imagine the contrast of heaven and glory to earth, being human, and the contempt he had from men. The contrast between the two. I think that maybe we would start seeing what kind of a big deal this is. Why is this a big deal? Why is this a big deal? Because he made himself nothing. He made himself literally of no reputation. He laid aside his glory in view of man. Was that a big deal to him? To have glory? Continually have glory? I think so. As a matter of fact, in John 17, right before his death, after he had fulfilled 33 years of ministry, in John 17, he's praying in the garden, and he's talking to his father right before he dies, and he says this, um, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, and I glorified you here on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In other words, Father, I came here to die. It's about to happen. Um, I have fulfilled, I have not received in some ways the glory that is due with me in view of man for 33 years. And look at what he says in verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. There was a point where I had that glory and I haven't had it now fulfilling your plan where I'm going to come and die. God became man and now I'm coming back and I want the glory again. And I think that we've just gotten so used to thinking God became man. I was having a conversation with my neighbor who's a Sikh and I was talking about Jesus, about God becoming man. And he just thought it was absolutely absurd. He, had, in his mind, as a Sikh, has such a high view of God and what, how other God is that it's absurd to him to think that God, so high and exalted, would lower himself to become a man. And in some ways that's true, right? That is true. It's very true. And I think that if we can maybe start thinking about the contrast of the glory that he was getting and then becoming man and how much glory was removed for a period in the view of man, 
in the view of man. And Matthew and the Jewish, because the, Jew, the Jews weren't looking for a king like the way he came. He came in poverty and was born in a manger and was dirty and gross and was very poor, never owned anything. They weren't picturing this king. They were picturing a king that was coming in glory and power and going to rule and reign, which he will in his second coming. But the first coming blew the Jewish mind. And Matthew is writing to that, that mind and saying, yes, that Jesus, that's the Messiah. And so I think that we need to picture this the way that they were and be amazed by it the way that when Matthew wrote to them and saying, yes, that is the Messiah. We get, a, we get a better understanding of what it means that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that God became man. So here's some, here's some conclusions that we made or some points that I made last week um, that I want you to feel. And these are application points, all right? These are applications. I re- kind of rewrote number one. So if you wrote one, one down last week, I want you to write it down again because it's a little bit different this time. Um, the first thing I want you to see as we look at this genealogy is we see in the Old Testament genealogies, all these people that are coming in the Old Testament, they're looking forward to this coming Messiah with great love and great anticipation knowing that He is going to be the Savior of Israel. And so this is what I'm saying. Um, we must feel the weight and thankfulness for Jesus and our salvation. We must feel the weight and thankfulness of our salvation that Jesus gives us with the same love and anticipation of the first century saint saints did for the coming king if we can see how much they love and anticipated and then be thankful with that same level then i think it would be life-changing for us that's the first thing is that we would feel the weight and thankfulness for jesus for our salvation that's something that i think that that the genealogy is pointing us to the second thing is this um, that we would feel the weight and anticipation and love and pray for the second coming of jesus the same way that these Old Testament saints felt and loved and anticipated the first coming of Jesus. Matthew twenty four fourteen. this gospel must be preached to all the nations, all the ethne, and then the end will come. That's what we are living for. That's what we are breathing for. That's why you are here for mission. God has sent you out, Matthew 28, to now go and teach and make disciples of all nations. That's why you have breath right now in your lungs. You're not here to play. It's okay to play, but that's not why you're here primarily if you're a Christian. And so the second coming comes when that happens, when, the, when the, all the ethne has heard. And so are you even considering it? Are you even praying for it? Is it even in your mind? I want you to feel and love and want and pray for that to happen in your lifetime, not just say it's going to happen eventually. I'll die and it'll happen in the next generations. No. Love and pray and anticipate and want that to happen now. And the last thing is this. As we look through this genealogy, we talked about it last week and we will see it this week. There are some wickedly horrible people in this genealogy. God uses some pretty messed up people to accomplish His purposes, which is to bring the Messiah to be the Savior of the world. And if that's true... He accomplishes purposes through wicked, sinful people. Then he's got purposes now where he wants to see things happen. And he will and desires to use you and me. It doesn't matter to me how sinful you are. It doesn't matter to God how sinful I am. God uses sinners. 
And so you are never discounted, never discounted because of your sin to be used by God to see some amazing things happen in your life. If you would just believe that and not live in despair and believe all the lies of the devil that you can never be used, but preach the gospel to yourself that justification has happened and that you are righteous in front of him, then you will have the courage to start telling people. You will have the courage to be used by him. Don't believe that you can't be used. If anything, these stories are clear pictures that wicked people are used to accomplish his purposes. So here we're coming to the kings, the period of the kings. And this is a brutal time. Brutal. I'm going to make several applications, but what I want you to see is this. Before David, there was Saul. And this is what happens. In 1 Samuel, um, Samuel's kind of the priest prophet over them, and God was their, was their king. And they said this, to, they came to Samuel and they said this, in 1 Samuel 8. This is before there ever was a king in Israel. They had been um, taken out of the land of Egypt, brought over to the promised land, and had been living as a people of God. And this is what happens in 1 Samuel 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and Samuel was kind of the leader of Israel at the time, and said, Behold, you are old and your sons don't walk in your way. Samuel had some brutal sons. They're just pretty brutal. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us. They never had a king before. Appoint for us to king to judge us. Here it is, like all the nations. We want to be like everybody else. We want to be like the world, Samuel. Let us be like the world. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said this. And they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord because he knew it wasn't good. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. From being king over them. This isn't, this isn't going to be a good ending. The kings of Israel. Was not a good thing. They had king. They had God as their king. And they said we want to be like everybody else. We want to look like everybody else. Is your heart like that? Is your heart so divided right now. That you just want to look like everybody else. To follow Christ wholeheartedly makes you look like different from everybody and that's just such a hard deal to do that you need to look like everybody else and stay safe. Is your heart's like them? We're going into the Kings here and I want to read it um, and just help you see there's about 14 Kings we're going to look at and it's divided right down the, right down the middle. The Bible says seven of these, if you look through the Kings, First and Second Kings and the First and Second Chronicles, um, where you can basically just see the stories of these guys and we're not going to do that. I'm just going to kind of talk it, talk it to you. Um, there's seven of them that the Bible describes as good and there's seven of them that the Bible describes as evil. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was good in the sight of the Lord. Let me read the text here and you can just get the names. You can get the, uh, the little... The little list here. Um, we talked about David was the wife, the wife of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And David had a son, Solomon. In verse 7, it says, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of 
Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So we can see Jeconiah was living at the time of this deportation. And so that's God's words. Those are those aren't just a like a, an Israel phone book where we just look at it and we say, oh, that's all right, whatever, you know, keep moving. This is God's word. These are God's, those are here for a reason. So what I want to do is today walk you through another kind of overview, basically a third of some of the Old Testament. And what I'm going to do is tell you some of these people and draw out some applications from these people and let you know what's going on. And hopefully, listen, you know, we're going to give out in a week another Bible reading plan like we do every year. And I'm just praying. I mean, I've been praying for a while that as you hear some Old Testament stories over the next three weeks, that God is going to renew within you a passion to want to read His Word this year, this coming year, that you're going to follow through, not just for a week or a month with the Bible reading plan, but you're going to see the benefits of reading the Bible all the way through in a year. And after that, you're going to do it again. And you're going to do it again. And you're going to do it again. Because there's anything true this is the thing that's going to change your life god has spoken through his word and you and i need this every single day all right here we are solomon solomon was the wisest god tells us in his bible that he was the wisest man ever he was the richest there has never been someone more wise or more rich than solomon ever ever not today not ever um, he built the temple. He was the author of most of the Proverbs. Uh, he was the author of Song of Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes. In 1 Kings 3, 3, 3, as he got started, said that Solomon loved the Lord. That's the good side. <laughs> but there was a downside. Solomon loved women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And then at the end... This was his downfall. As you get to 1 Kings 11, um, 1 Kings 3 says Solomon loved the Lord. 1 Kings 11 ends with, and Solomon loved many foreign women. So not only did he love the Israelite women who would claim God as their God, the one true God, but he loved foreign women as well. And then that, loving them made his heart follow after their pagan gods. In the end, we have a sad story of Solomon where he had probably the greatest potential, and was one of the greatest kings, but greatest potential to be one of the greatest kings. But 1 Kings 11.4, right after it says he loved many foreign women, it said his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as, his, as was the heart of his father David. The New Testament commentary says spiritually he did not measure up to his father, whose heart, his father David, whose heart was again and again filled with genuine, poignant sorrow for his sin. Now, I don't think it's healthy for us to kind of compare ourselves to each other like the Bible just did. Um, But what I want to know is this. Is your heart like David genuinely filled continually with genuine, poignant sorrow for your sin? When you sin, are you like Solomon and it's just callous, numbness, you don't care anymore? Or is it like David Whenever you sin, you're broken again. You're devastated again. You're sorrowful again, and you return again. Um, the staff right now, we're reading a book called The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. It's um, basically, uh, he's a Puritan writer, lived around uh, the 17th century. And um, 
This whole book is about killing sin, hating sin. It's kind of a dissertation or an exegesis of Romans 8.13. And basically, Romans 8.13 says, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. And this is what John Owen, talking about killing sin and hating sin, he says, we will not be making progress in holiness without walking over the bellies of our lusts. He who does not kill sin along the way is making no progress in his journey. So the question isn't just, are you feeling sin, sorrow for sin? The question is, or the the truth is, that you are not making progress in your journey if not only you're not feeling sorrow, but not putting it to death. This is a picture from Solomon's life that it is key that we're putting to death our sin. He did not have a spirit of repentance like his father. His heart continually ran after other gods. And because of this, um, God told him in 1 Kings 11, he says this, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since it has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded, I, God, will surely tear the kingdom away from you. I will give it out to your, ser- to your servant. Yet for, the sake of your, yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. What this means is this. Solomon was the king over all 12 tribes. But because his heart was continually drawn away from sin, he says, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from your sons and I'm going to split it up and I'm going to make this a, a divided place. And there, to the north where Israel is, there's going to be 10 kingdoms and your sons will not rule over that. And to the south, the small little piece, that's where your sons are going to have. This little small piece of land and people. And the only reason I'm even doing that is because I'm honoring your father David and I'm going to preserve through that little small line the coming Messiah because of your sin, Solomon. And so now we see what is this kind of split in the kingdom to the north and south. To the north is called Israel and to the south is called Judah. So as you're reading through the kings and you see so-and-so is the king over Israel, so-and-so is the king over Judah, that's because there's two kingdoms now. Um, That's why it happened. How did it happen is this. Um, well, let's, let's look at this one thing. I do want to talk about this one thing. He says, I'm going, to sh- I'm going to tear it away from you, yet for the sake of your David, I will not tear it out of your hand now. And I just want you to see that this is how God works in regard to your idols. The idol of self, the idol of sex, the idol of money or accomplishments or security or whatever your idol is, he's going to reach in to you, to your heart that clings to it so deeply, and he's going to rip it away from you. Eventually, you can mark my words, this will happen. This is how he works. He rips these things from your hands and heart so that he might save you from yourself. He is going to break you down in order that grace may break through. God is going to do that if you have sin that you are clinging to in your life. And that's just like he ripped it from his kingdom, uh, ripped the kingdom from him. The Lord himself will do that. Now, this is how it happened. Solomon had a son after he died named Rehoboam that took over all 12. He was the king. Um, and whenever he became king, uh, he said, I'm wondering how I'm going to rule. What's, how should I do this? And so he... 
the people come to him and said, your, your, your father Solomon kind of ruled us very harshly. How are you going to rule us? And he says, give me three days, I'm going to come back to you. Um, and so he goes and he talks to some of the older men and he asks them, he goes, um, how should I rule over them? Harshly like my father or, or not? And the, the older men says, if you serve them and you speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. And then he goes and asks some young people that he grew up with. You know, his friends, from, from his boys from back in the day before he became king. And he asked them, um, he said, what do you think I should do? And some weird little thing, this must be like a, a Jewish idiom. They said, tell them that my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. I don't know what that means exactly, but I think it means I'm going to be worse than, the, than my dad. But don't use that like later on, like telling people that. They're just going to think you're strange. Um, but he basically says, uh, he comes back to him, and this is basically what he says to him. Um, my father disciplined Rehoboam, uh, talking about Solomon to the people of Israel. My father disciplined you with whips. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. That's what he tells them. Um, they don't like this news. So Rehoboam um, sent a taskmaster to the people of Israel in the northern kingdom to try to enforce this harsh treatment. Well, they stoned the taskmaster to death. Rehoboam, and the Bible literally says he runs over to his chariot and he hops in and he just rides off. And like, that was it. And so um, there was another guy that was kind of um, battling against Solomon named Jeroboam at the time. The people of Israel say, we want Jeroboam. So Jeroboam becomes the king of Israel um, to the north and Rehoboam retreats and becomes king of Israel to the south. And now as we're going through this genealogy, Matthew is just going to move down to the south and this genealogy is just going to take us through that southern kingdom. Matthew in this genealogy doesn't talk about the northern, northern kingdom. As a matter of fact, he only mentions one king and it's just in passing because he's comparing that northern king to one of the southern kings. He mentioned, the northern king he mentions is Ahab, which we're going to get to in a second. Um, so um, now... There's not as much time on each guy now. Basically, uh, each story now is just pretty, pretty sad or pretty awesome. Um, after Rehoboam gets to the south, he dies. His son Abijah takes over. Um, he, he reigns for about three years. He walks in sin. His heart's not true to God. And then he dies. And then his son Asa takes over. Um, Asa ruled for 41 years. He did what was right in the Lord. He destroyed most of the uh, sinful practices that had happened from Abijah and from his father Rehoboam um, and it says that he was a good guy who did right in the Lord and then he died and Jehoshaphat came he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord he died and then his son Joram um, or jo Jehoram whichever one uh, there's two pronunciations some of these kings have two pronunciations um, became king he reigned eight years it said that uh, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord um, as a matter of fact in second Kings 8 it says that this guy Joram he walked in the way of the kings of Israel to the north um, that the house of Ahab had done. So at one time, there was a king called Ahab in the north. Um, just in case you're wondering who that guy was, he was married to Jezebel. You've probably heard of her. Anybody calls you Jezebel, ladies? That's not a compliment. Um, not a great catch at all. <laughs> um, but it says that this guy, Joram, ruled down to the south in the same way that Ahab done. As a matter of fact, Joram was married to the daughter of Ahab. So maybe that's why a little... Um, Brought, she, his, his brutal daughter brought it in. It says that she, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, in the end, Ahab is confronted about his, his lack of love and concern for God. And he repents and fasts and lay in sackcloth and ashes and weeps. So there are little pictures here where these kings were, where God says this guy 
was evil. As we read, it was evil in the sight of the Lord. Little pictures on some of these kings, not all. Where in the end, somebody confronts them and they repent. And then, in the, in the genealogy, um, it, it goes from Joram straight to Uzziah. And basically, Matthew skips three generations. And as I said, um, in, in Jewish times, as, as they're doing generations, it's just customary. It's not a big deal. Matthew had a goal. Um, he wanted to do, for some reason, he wanted to do three sets of 14. And some people can argue about numbers, and that's why. And three, if you take 14 and divide it in half, it's seven. And Jesus is the seventh, seventh, that as you go through it, and it's perfect. I mean, maybe so. But um, he wanted to do 14. That's why he skips three generations here. Um, so Joram had a son, da, 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 and it brings us to Uzziah. Um, and we know that Uzziah um, was a contemporary of Isaiah. It says that when the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. That's Isaiah 6.1. So um, Uzziah was one of these guys that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. As a matter of fact, it says that the Lord had struck him with leprosy and most of his reign of king, which is around 52 years, um, he was struck with leprosy. So some of you that are experiencing suffering, it could happen your whole life. But this man was king of Israel and suffered. So you can still do things for God with your suffering. After Uzziah died, um, Jotham took over. It says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Um, He reigned about 16 years. And then um, after that, Ahaz. Um, Ahaz was the ninth. He was not good. As a matter of fact, um, he was horrible. He was probably one of the worst kings. He burned one of his own sons as a burnt offering to a pagan god. Um, He was absolutely wicked beyond belief. Um, And here's what happens. During the reign of Ahaz to the south, um, the, the north was having no different kind of luck. The north was having bad kings, good kings, bad kings, good kings, just wicked. And their sin was awful as well. Well, while Ahaz was king to the south, there was another king to the north called Pekah. And while Pekah was king, um, the Lord had so much... Uh, he, had, he had put up with so much sin to the north that he, um, against the north, decided to just destroy this northern kingdom completely. Um, in Second Kings it says, It occurred while the people had sinned against the Lord. This is why the Lord kind of destroyed the northern kingdom and just wiped it out and just the southern kingdom remained now. It was because they had sinned against the Lord. Um, and it says in Second Kings 17, it says, The Lord was very angry with Israel, the northern kingdom, and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. That's how much God despises sin in our lives. It says that he removed the entire tribe of Israel to the north from his sight, but keeps Judah. And listen, the only reason he is keeping Judah is not because they're great. They're doing what's wicked in the sight of the Lord as well. But God made a promise to David, and he is a covenant keeper, and he is preserving the line of the Messiah through Judah. That's the only reason why it's remaining. So after Ahaz um, comes Hezekiah. Maybe you've heard of Hezekiah. Um, It says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Um, Things were good. Things were prospered. He was a king um, that at one point Isaiah came to him. Isaiah had, he was a contemporary of Isaiah. Isaiah came to Hezekiah and said, hey, um, you're going to die. It's it's over. Everything's done. Um, It's time for you to go. 
And it says that he wept bitterly because he was going to die and didn't want to die. And so um, he, he goes and asks God. He says, God, I've done all these things. I've built all these things. I've done what's right. Please give me some more life. Please give me some more life. And the Lord heard him and gave him 15 more years. Gave him 15 more years. Um, but as you read, this is one of these stories where he still did what was right, but it would have been better if he had died. It would have been better if he had died. Because the last 15 years, as he got really, really sick and God told him he was going to die, some of the kings that weren't Israelites heard that he was sick and they came over just to see him and see how he was doing. Hey, you doing okay? Hezekiah, sorry you're feeling sick. And thanks for, you know, Hezekiah, thanks for being so nice guys. You're so nice to me. Um, it's glad that you would do this. And so it's, this is Babylon. The king, the Babylon's coming over there and showing their, you know, their niceties to him, thinking he's, he's nice. And so this naive king who, who, if he wouldn't have died, this wouldn't have happened. Um, as he gets his last 15 years, um, take, brings in the Babylon people who, the Babylonian people who are be, being so nice, and he brings them back and he says, "Look at all these treasures I have, Solomon. Our, you know, our forefather. He has all these treasures for us." And and it says that Isaiah came and he said, "Did you show um, Babylon all your treasure?" He goes, "Yeah, I didn't hold back anything. I took them all around. I showed them everything we had." That was the act that we'll see later on, where Babylon comes and just takes over. Nebuchadnezzar, when he's king, decides to come and take, and it literally says he took all the treasures from Israel. So it would have been better if he had died, and that wouldn't have happened. So here we see a guy who's doing well, and then in the end makes a not-so-smart act at the end of his life. Some people are evil in the sight of the Lord, and they repent in the end, and some people, it doesn't say that, you know, what he did was an evil act. I just think it was a naive act. And in the end, certainly was the downfall of, of Israel. Well, one of the reasons we also know that God had enough. So the next king was Manasseh. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, in the very end, Second Chronicles thirty-three twelve said that he humbled himself greatly before the Lord. As a matter of fact, it says that he finally knew that the Lord was God. So an evil life lived. At the end, somebody confronts him and that it, he actually returns to the Lord. He restored the altar of the Lord. It was one of the few things he did that was good. He dies. Amos came. Um, wicked beyond belief. As a matter of fact, he was so bad that his own people, his own servants, just killed him. They didn't like him anymore. They just killed him. Um, and then his son Josiah took over. And Josiah, you probably heard of. You probably heard, have little kids running around you, that are named Josiah. Josiah's a good guy. It's a good name. Um, Here's what goes going on. Now, remember, we've gone through several generations now where we finally get to Jos Josiah. Um, David had a great understanding of the word, great understanding of the law, and great understanding that there was this book of the law that we should be reading as a, a people of Israel. Generation after generation after generation of good, evil, good, evil, good, evil, good, evil. And we have Josiah, who's a good guy, but doesn't know everything that David knew. Because the wicked sin had just gone through generations and generations. And it says... Um, that Josiah was king and um, one of the priests is going through and kind of counting out the treasures and then they find this book. They find this book and the priest starts reading it and he's like, this is unbelievable. It's the book of the law. So he goes to the secretary and says, you have got to read this book. It's unbelievable. And the, the secretary reads it and he came to Josiah and he said, we found this book. We got to read this. And it says that as he read it to Josiah, Josiah says, the Bible says, when he heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes and he wept. The reading of the Bible to someone who had never heard it in a long time 
cause this emotion. This is the power of the word of God for you and me. It says that he he wept and tore his clothes and he said, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of his book. He understood we are wretched sinners in the eyes of this God. This book has made me aware. And just don't miss this one truth as we're looking through this. This book has got powerful, powerful implications for your life. If you and I could just read this and be captivated the way Josiah was as he heard this, that we would at least in our minds or in spiritually rip our clothes off and weep in a sense that we are thinking, this is amazing. We're not doing what it says. Go, find some people, get everybody involved. We have to obey this word. That's what Josiah experienced. And he did many good things, made some real changes. As a matter of fact, he said that he was, he said to the Lord, I'm going to keep all the commandments and testimonies and statutes, and I'm going to do it with all of my heart and all of my soul. This is the words that he says to God. And he destroyed the pagan sinful practices. He restored the Passover that hadn't been happening. Huge deal. And the Bible says before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his might and none arose after him like him. Josiah was a great man and all it took was someone coming and saying, I found this book. You've got to hear it. The power of God's word in your life and in mine. And it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he died. And his son took over. Um, Jeconiah. And there's some weirdness to this. Um, Jeconiah didn't take over right away. But this brings us into the Babylonian captivity, basically. Um, Another king took over and they just didn't really like him. And uh, another king kind of shipped him off to Egypt. And his other son, um, Josiah's other son, came and took over. Um, and really what you're going to see here, um, and their, their names are kind of weird. If you look here in, in the end of 11, it says Josiah, the father of Jeconiah um, and his brothers. And so that we can see he throws that in that brothers just reminded there was a king. They didn't like him. They just shipped him off to Egypt. And Jeconiah took over as the king. Jeconiah also, if you read in the Old Testament, was also known as Jehoiakim. And then if you read up here to 12, um, it says after the deportation to Babylon, and it says, after notice, not at the time, like in verse 11, but after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father. And so it just mentions that same guy again. Well, that's not the same person, in my opinion here. There's, there's, there's different thoughts, but I think that's a different person. Jeconiah had another son, Jeconiah. Um, and so the first one is Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah. And the second one in verse 12 is Jehoiachin, also known as Jeconiah. That's my opinion. And we're going to talk about that next week because we're going to get to it. But the the... The tenses of time in verse 11 says at the time of the deportation and at, after. And as I said, these kings have two different names all the time, so it's kind of difficult to interpret. But here's what I want you to understand about verse 11, this first Jeconiah mentioned. Um, Babylon came in during his reign. Nebuchadnezzar came, and it says he besieged the city, took over, um, took over all the treasures, and 
We see in Second Chronicles 13, the Chronicles, by the way, are just them chronicling the stories of the Old Testament. So if you want to get a quick overview of the whole Old Testament, you can read First and Second Chronicles as they chronicle the entirety of the, of the Old Testament. Um, the very end of it says, in a word, there's one reason why this happened, this, this Babylonian deportation where even God's still going to preserve his line, but there's no longer the kings over Israel anymore. It says, impenitence, a disregard of prophetic warning and... The, the people of Israel would not return and repent and return to the Lord. From David to Jeconiah is a massive, massive decline in the people of Israel. A massive decline. So just some conclusions I want to draw out here. Um, and as I draw these, con- these conclusions, there's three things about grace that I want you to let land on your heart and amaze you and realize where you are and that you are not out of the reach of this grace. The first thing is this. These, are, these three conclusions are from um, the New Testament commentary. These three th- things about grace I just want to throw in for free for me. Jewish boasting about being a descendant of Abraham amounts to unjustifiable glory in the flesh. Just because... Um, Someone is saying, I'm of the tribe of Israel. You're, you're not boasting about very much. We just read a lot of horrible people. It's foolish and wicked, as the New Testament commentary says. Salvation is not from below, from mankind, or being of a tribe. Salvation is from God. Grace is scandalous. In that, it doesn't matter what your background is. I'm not, and God's not um, going to be overcome by the amount of sin you've created in your life and not be able to save you. Grace is scandalous. He saved Paul. He can save you. He can do some amazing things. The grace that he's extending into your life right now should amaze you as it did as he sent it to these people. The next conclusion is this, that Jesus is, and this is the whole point of what I told you why this is written, Jesus is the long-awaited anointed one. Jesus is God's son. God is wanting to redeem mankind. It's God alone who fulfills these prophecies concerning the Messiah. Grace is not only scandalous, but it's redemptive. God is wanting to redeem for him a people, zealous for him and his glory. So whatever situation you're in, God is offering you redemption. God is offering you restoration with him. It's it's not with your fellow man, although redemption with fellow man is great. You know, when you've sinned against someone here and you're you're restored to relationship with them, that is amazing. But redemption or restoration to the God of the universe is amazing. And this grace that he's offering you right now is redemption. Here's the third conclusion. Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world, not only of the Jews, but those who are destined to be saved by Him, drawn in from every nation. It's clear that grace has now been extended not just to the people of Israel, but we as Gentiles, which are probably most of us, are being adopted into His family. We're being engrafted into that tree. And so grace is extended out of just the Jewish family and to all the nations of the world. That's you and me. Absolutely mind-blowing and amazing. So where are you today? Where are you going to land today? 
Are you going to start out with so much promise? Are you going to start out with so much future, so much potential like Solomon, only to fizzle out and run after foreign idols? Are you going to be like these kings who were evil their entire life and finally did what was right in the sight of the Lord and live it up and just come to Christ at the end? Maybe you'd be like Josiah. Maybe today is you didn't know and the word of the Lord has come to you and you said, I'm going to do everything within the sound of my mind, soul, and heart and strength to live for the glory of Him. I'm going to follow Him. I'm going to obey everything He says. Or maybe you've started out strong and I'm just going to ask you to be like one of these kings that started out strong and ended strong. Your life is always going to be about living for the glory of Christ because He told us He wants it. John 17, 5. Restore to me the glory I had before I came. I've done all the work you've called me to do. I'm coming home, Dad, and I want the glory I had. Are you going to live for that all the days of your life? Grace is scandalous. Grace is redemptive. And grace is extended to you and me. And it's not through a line You're not born onto the list in order to receive it. We're born again onto the list by the Spirit of God coming into our hearts and regenerating us so that He receives all of the glory. So who are you today? Where are you today? If you don't know Jesus, come to Him. He is the anointed Messiah. He is the promised one that will save you. He came and died for you on the cross, beat death and was resurrected three days later and has ascended to the hand of the Father and is interceding right now for us all and for you. Come to Christ. And if you know Him, I'm not inviting you to do this. God is inviting you to resolve in your heart and mind to live for Him all the days of your life. We're going to go into a time of worship and I just, you know, I just want to invite you to do this. Listen, I've given you a couple pictures of what worship is going to be like in heaven. Isaiah saw the Lord and he just screamed out, I'm a man of unclean lips. John saw the Lord and he fell down and he said, I felt like a dead man. We know that this glory, this picture in heaven of worship that's going on is astounding. And we're not going to replicate that. We're still sinful and we're still on earth. But we can strive. Not just in corporate worship for 15, 20 minutes when Cameron leads us, but with our life as we go out. We can strive for that kind of glory living. So as we go into worship, I just want you, with everything you have, with the way that God's wired you, to be obedient the Holy Spirit's prompting, and let's sing out to our great and glorious King who is due all of the worship and glory that we can give Him. If you need to talk, we'll have people down here after service to pray with you and talk with you. I'll be right here during the worship. You don't need to be ashamed or feel bad about coming like someone's going to see you. So what? I'd love to be able to pray with you and talk with you. I'm going to turn over to Cameron now and we're going to go into our time of worship. Let me pray. Lord, you're just so good to us. And if there's anything we can learn from these stories of kings and really everybody in the Old Testament is that 
you will use us. You will save us. And you are a covenant-keeping God. You keep your promises and you are extending to us this amazing grace and salvation in Christ. And I just pray that we would respond joyfully, promptly, and with great joy right now. I pray these things in Jesus' name.